Hey, just a quick message before we get into today's episode. I want to let you know my newest book, The Culture System, it's now available. If you're a listener to this podcast, you obviously find the strategies and the practical things that we talk about, you, you find those valuable, and that's great. But when it comes to building a great culture, you need to be consistent in the application of practical strategies to build the culture. And to be consistent, you need a system. My newest book, The Culture System, A Proven Process for Creating an Extraordinary Team Culture, it offers that system. It's practical, but also has some intriguing stories as well as some stories and examples of how other coaches that I've worked with have implemented those things over the years. You can get the book at Amazon.com or you can go over to MyCultureSystem.com, MyCultureSystem.com. There are links there for people that live outside the U.S. Uh, to purchase from your Amazon page. Thanks for considering investing your time and money uh, in purchasing this book. It doesn't just support this podcast. It supports you, the culture you're trying to build and the leader you're trying to become. I guarantee it. I love coaches <laughs> that resist the responsibility of coaches, that talk negatively about a dude that can't learn and bub up. Man, if everybody could learn, we need less coaches. Yeah, that's right. Right? If, if the group didn't need management, then we wouldn't make as much. Yep. I love reading draft evals and, and, and somebody's talking about anything other than pedigree, talking about how poor somebody's hand usage is. Well, that's coaching. Mm. I don't run away from coaching. I run to coaching. Love it. It all is in line with that not seeking comfort because when you're a coach that's talking about somebody can't learn, you're seeking comfort because your teaching is struggling. That was the voice of Pittsburgh Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin in an excerpt from the Pivot podcast talking about the importance of embracing our role as teachers in the midst of the games that we coach. And what I love about Tomlin's approach here is that when he sees a player that might get labeled by some as uncoachable, that guy can't remember anything, that guy never does what we ask him to do, that guy's always struggling to pick up our schemes or do things the right way, Instead of saying it's always that guy's problem or that guy's fault, essentially Tomlin is embracing the responsibility. He's looking at it from a different perspective saying that guy hasn't been coached well yet. And oftentimes that responsibility as a head coach or someone leading our workouts in the offseason right now, it falls on me to teach better. If a player doesn't know what they're supposed to do, even if I've told them that I haven't done a good enough job being able to educate them and teach them in a way that goes beyond just telling them what to do or how to do it. And so this week on the podcast, JP and I are going to talk a little bit about what is the difference between telling and teaching when it comes to great coaching. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin, founder of TOC Culture Consulting and the author of The Culture System. I'm joined by my co-host, Nate Sanderson, each week on this podcast in around 30 minutes. We talk about coaching the leadership, how we can be better at creating a great culture, uh, building relationships, holding our players to a standard, and we talk about improving ourselves. If you want to get the notes to this episode and every episode of the Coaching Culture Podcast, subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Links are in the details of this episode or at tocculture.com. Okay, Nate, so when I look back on my coaching journey, when my team wouldn't execute the game plan, when we would lose a game that we shouldn't have lost or not play the way that I thought we should have played. I, I think initially 
I think initially I might look to find some new drills to fix the issue. And like, if we didn't shoot well, I thought we needed new shooting drills. We turned the ball over. I looked for new passing drills or decision-making drills. If we didn't communicate on defense, I usually looked for new drills to work on communication. And truth be told, that didn't usually work. And when it didn't work, I would then complain the players weren't smart enough. They didn't work hard enough. Uh, they didn't want to compete enough. Or they weren't coachable enough. Co- not coachable, like uncoachable, right? That's, 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 that was the buzzword I often threw around about my players. But as time went on in my coaching journey, I started to come to this awareness that maybe the problem wasn't them, it was me. As John Wooden would always say, you haven't taught until they've learned. I wasn't an effective teacher. Just because I told them how to do something and put them through some drills didn't mean I taught them. Telling is one thing, teaching is another. So I'm going to throw this question out to you, Nate, because I consider you a far more skilled teacher than me when it comes to the game of basketball. Uh, But from your perspective, what's the difference between telling and teaching? Similar to you, over the course of time, over the course of my career, I've become a better teacher in the gym. Less of a, a telling players what to do or what not to do, and more of trying to figure out the best way that players can learn the things that they need to know to be successful. What does that difference between teaching and telling look like? I think I see it most now in the contrast between what I hear maybe parents yelling from the stands at their players and what I'm trying to communicate to them as a coach. Because early in my career, it would have been almost the same thing. You know, a parent's up there yelling at them, stop dribbling into the trap or don't pick it up at half court. You know, the, the obvious things that Anybody that's watched enough basketball knows, you know, don't dribble the sideline, pick it up and then get in the fetal position. Like it doesn't work. Right. So parents are trying to be helpful, just like I was as a coach, you know, a young coach yelling, don't do that. Stop doing that. But again, players would continue to do it because I wasn't teaching them the right way to handle that situation. And so there's a lot that goes into to being a master teacher or growing in our ability to teach rather than just to tell. Uh, and I think, you know, to most of coaches' credit, I think most of us know what we're supposed to be doing, what players are supposed to be doing on the court. I think the artistry comes and the mastery comes with, do you know how to teach that to players in a way that they can learn rather than just a way that you can say, well, I told them 10,000 times that they were supposed to do this or they weren't supposed to do that. And that's kind of what we want to kick around today is how do I become a better teacher rather than just a teller? Well, I think that's so important, not just from a retention thing, not just that the players remember it and can put it into practice, but I also think it comes from a motivational aspect. When we're constantly just telling people what to do and we don't engage them in this learning process, even if they retain the information and even if they know how to do it or what they think that looks like for us as the coach, doesn't necessarily mean that they were going to put forth the effort to execute that. They are less likely to be bought in. They're going to be less intrinsically motivated to put forth the necessary effort to be oftentimes effective or successful in, 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 in whatever we're asking or trying to teach them to do. And so I think it's not just even a retention thing, but I think it's also a motivation aspect. And if we can become better teachers, I think that's going to help our culture. I think that's going to help to, to create buy-in to the things that we're doing Uh, within our program. Well, I think that's right, JP. I think the more the learning becomes the players, it becomes their learning rather than your telling, 
the more engaged they're going to be, the more enthusiastic they're going to be, the more they're going to feel that our process and what we're doing, it works and it's credible. And so I think it's worth trying to spend some time in the off season to discover how can I become a better teacher? And I think back to last summer, you and I talked a fair amount off air about Doug Lamov's book, um, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. And there's a lot to digest in that book. But one of the, the key takeaways for me is that you know, he talked about master teaching is not just being the what, not telling players what they're supposed to do, but really how do we communicate that? And communicating to players, do they know how to retreat, dribble, and avoid the trap? Do they know where they're supposed to look for their outlet? Are their outlets being <laughs> available You know, in that situation? All of those things, the how, really make it possible for the what to happen. And yet, again, looking back at my early career and some of the practices of other coaches, I think sometimes we get so consumed by what and not don't spend enough time thinking about how, how do I get a player to understand? How do I get a player to be more instinctual? Well, a lot of that comes back to my ability or inability to teach. And obviously one of the challenges when you take over a program is you're not really sure what players know, what they're comfortable with, what their language was from their previous coach. And so, you know, there's one approach that says, well, I'm going to try to observe and figure out what, what they know and what they're good at and then kind of build from there. We started from a little bit of a different place, and that is we just assumed that they didn't know anything. And it wasn't because they didn't know anything, but it was because it forced us to teach and figure out the best way to teach and to scaffold and to build in our offense and to start to inhab- incorporate some of our cultural values. Like if we just assume, they don't know anything, then how would I bring a beginner into our offense, into our culture, into our defense? And I think that helped crystallize for us as coaches, the importance of communication and sequencing and kind of taking things one step at a time, which we'll talk about as we go along here. But that assumption, rather than they should know this, or why don't they know that? We didn't get hung up on any of that stuff. We just started from a place of assuming a beginner's mind how do we teach this from square one? I really appreciate that approach because one of the things I hear a lot from coaches is our guys just don't know how to compete or we just don't know how to work hard. We don't know how to win. You know, these are very common phrases that we use as coaches to describe our players. And the reality is, okay, they don't. Maybe they don't know that. Or maybe they just don't know how to compete or work at the level that you know, which is probably okay. And that's fine. It's understandable. You know, we are significantly older than than them with significantly more life experiences. It is our job to step in there and to teach them. And so often when I think about, you know, when it comes to things like competing or attitude or effort and stuff like that, it's all very, very relative. And so we have to be teachers in those things as well too. And We become frustrated though as coaches, I think, when we assume they know more, you know, on a technical skill or even just something like competing or, you know, their effort. We we assume they should be at this certain level. And we just create a lot of frustrations for ourselves instead of just going in there and saying, hey, all right, I'm gonna assume once again they know nothing and I'm ready to work with them on that and because that's my job. Well, another area, JP, that that uh, I find myself struck by when I watch other coaches practices, oftentimes is I just think to myself, you know, 
you see a lack of effort. You see players not talking. You see them being disorganized. You see them taking forever to get from one drill to the next. And the, the thought that just bangs in my head is they don't know how to practice. They don't know how to practice at a high level, right? And some coaches would say, well, that's because they don't have the leadership. They don't have the seniors that are going to hold them accountable or they're going to show the way, whatever. And there's certainly those components are important. But when we started at Mount Vernon, again, from that assumption, they don't know anything. That also meant I assumed that they didn't know how to practice. They've been in practices their whole life, but did they know how to practice the way we want to practice? I doubt it. And so before we even went into the gym to start the season, we walked through you know, some of the things, our practice rituals. We start in the circle. We start with connection. Here's how we get in and out of drills. We're going to use the theater, you know, just some of the nuts and bolts that have been effective for us over the years. But we talked about those practice expectations and we talked about why those were important and why those yielded better practices for us. So, again, taking 45 minutes before our first practice to teach them how to practice and why. And I think not only did it give us, you know, the same set of expectations to start. But it reinforced even to our coaching staff and this kind of this mindset of we're going to coach everything from how we come into the gym to practice, to how we start, to how we get in and out of things. And not only are we going to, to teach it, but we're also going to communicate to our players why it's important and trying to get them to think about, well, why is it important to hustle in and out of drills? Well, we would ask them, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What do we get done if we don't? You know, and so just engaging them sort of in the reflective process on how we practice gave us a massive head start to this season, you know, compared to some of these other practices that I've seen over the years. It's funny you, you share that story. I remember being invited to the New England Patriots training camp back in 2018 and that summer, and I was just fascinated about how they actually took the time to teach players. These are, you know, some of them are rookies, but other are other players from other teams of this is how we practice here, right? They took time to go through that. And then throughout the season, you know, there's, there's amazing stories about how they will teach the players how to do halftime. Like I think halftime is a one, a big complaint from, from coaches oftentimes is I go in there and they got nothing to say. There's no ownership. There's no reflection. It's just me. And, you know, I, I've been that coach, right? So I've said that loads of times. Um, about how my players don't know how to reflect or engage, but I never took the time to teach them. Well, here the Patriots actually take time during the practice week to go in the locker room and to walk through their practice ritual or their halftime rituals and how they'll reflect on things. It's, it's, it's really profound. You know, one of the other things I would, I would offer here too is, you know, you mentioned this earlier, which is probably the number one thing I hear coaches telling their players to do, or at least one of the top things is to communicate you know, is we got to talk more, we got to communicate. And we really don't teach that. Uh, I remember, you know, a couple of years back, there was a video in the basketball community of an NBA player that was mic'd up during a game and he's running around and it's him during all these defensive possessions and he's talking and it's really high level communication. And I just know so many coaches on the Twitter world and they were going to their players and showing, this is what communication is. This is what it is. And I'm like, yeah, but that's really skilled communication that takes high IQ where a player's been taught the game and they've been taught how to communicate. They've, they've worked it and practiced that skill. And if we want people to develop skills around work ethic or communication 
or a competitive fire or just any skill in general, it's going to require time. It's not just something you can tell and expect results in there. Related to that, underlying that approach to teaching communication is this assumption that maybe I think players should know it, but they don't. And they don't know it because they haven't been coached. And that was kind of the second assumption when we started at Mount Vernon was, you know, we're going to teach some things, but there are some things as we went through the year that we weren't good at, like watching film. We weren't bad. We were adequate. Okay. We met the TOC standard of adequate, right? When we're watching film in the classroom, but it wasn't overly engaging. Uh, it wasn't very, there's not a lot of energy in the room. And I don't know that players really knew exactly what they were looking for. It was much more of a, here's a presentation of some things we did well and what to expect with the next opponent coming from the coaching staff. And at the end of the year, when we did our exit interviews, looking back at that, you know, we talked to players about how could we make that better? But we never, and this was intentional because we couldn't teach everything in year one. We never took time like we did for practice to sit down and say, okay, we're going to go into the classroom. We're going to watch film. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Now let's talk about what makes a good film session. What questions should we be asking? What are we looking for? What are we trying to get out of it? We never taught it. And so it never really got to a level that was very good. But instead of saying, well, that's on the players, they never figured it out as a coaching staff. We just said that's on us because we never coached it. So when I look back over the course of the season at things that maybe we didn't do very well in year one, I'm not doing it from a place of blaming players. I'm doing it from a place of engaging players in this process of trying to figure out how can we do it better next year, all the while knowing in the back of my mind that we didn't coach it this year. So I can't really expect it to be good. But now thinking about how do we want to coach it next year when we don't have to put as much time into some of the other things that we instilled in year one. I think those are some really interesting things that not a lot of coaches probably give much thought to actually teaching. And they just end up maybe complaining <laughs> about the, the players in those instances. But I think about if you're trying to teach or address you know, and help your players grow in a certain area. One of the big things I think I pay a lot of attention to now is their motivation to learn. And if I want to teach something, are they motivated to actually improve in this area? Or is it really, you know, if I'm, I, if I am trying to engage them, you know, is it going to kind of fall on deaf ears? Are they going to just really not you know, be, be interested in retaining it? And I think that kind of the two keys when it comes to motivating to learn, to make sure that it's right for me to actually engage and try to teach something. The first one is awareness. Like if they are not aware that there's an issue <laughs> or some deficiency, then why would they be interested in learning something new? And they have a total, total lack of awareness uh, at times. And, and, and then you have to find ways to highlight and help them to become aware. You know, that could be obviously using, you know, different forms of questions and stuff like that to get them to reflect. But I think the second thing on top of that is what you mentioned earlier, the why. Like, why is this so important? How would this actually lead to our success? So I'm aware that there's a deficiency or we could have definitely improved this area. And there's reason to improve in this because if we make these changes, it's going to result in this. It's going to result in a better experience. We're going to score more points. We're going to be, you know, a better performing team. But if I don't think I have a problem or if I think of a problem, but it's not actually that important, then why would I be interested in learning from you? Well, I think that's a great point, JP, because players do need to understand, you know, what is this issue that we're addressing and why is it important for us to spend some time here to improve it? Now, you and I have put together a list of some strategies that have worked for us over the years as we've 
gotten a little bit better at this, I think, in practices. So in no particular order, I'm going to hit on a few here, JP. The first thing that's been good for us in terms of teaching is thinking of things in terms of a seminar rather than a segment. In other words, if you look at a lot of practice plans, you'll see there's a segment for half-court offense or one-on-one or ball handling or rebounding. Like Everything is compartmentalized. And, and maybe there's purpose for that. But if I'm trying to get better, and I think back to last year, we were we were really bad rebounding defensively. We didn't teach it until December. So we're giving up 12, 13 offensive rebounds a game and not really talking a lot about it because there's other things that we were teaching before that. Well, when it was time for us to start identifying in our system in particular, the top two players in our zone had to be more accountable. They had to be more active in the defensive rebounding. We started with film. And so we look back at the game before we had given up 12 offensive rebounds. Eight of them were because the top player didn't pursue or didn't box somebody out, shoot her out, whatever it might be. And so we started with, just as you talked about before, awareness of the problem. We talked about solutions. How can we do this better? And then we went downstairs and we spent you know, 15, 20 minutes on working on this, both individually and then in a five-on-five context. Altogether, we probably spent close to 45 minutes just on the topic of the tops rebounding better in the zone. You fast forward to the rest of the year, we never really had to come back to it specifically because we invested so much time in it, you know, almost like a whole class period just on that particular subject. We did the same thing for post-entry passes. And I could go through you know, a number of different areas where we decided, all right, now is the time we need to teach this one aspect. Let's do it in film. Let's talk about it. Let's show them the technique and let's work on it. And let's invest 30 minutes, 40 minutes to doing it one time really well. And then just reminders from that point on, rather than, gosh, JP, we got to get, you know, I think we need 10 minutes on defensive rebounding today, but never really spending enough time to get in depth with it to make huge progress uh, in a in a one period or one seminar uh, time frame. I love that idea of a seminar because there's so many practices now that I remember where we didn't rebound well or you know didn't shoot the ball well and I would just say all right we're going to we're going to work on that with a you know 2 minute speech at half court about how we got to work harder to rebound and then we're going to do you know two or three rebounding drills and then I'm going to expect my team to rebound better the next day. <laughs> so I think the idea of just, hey, let's make this a seminar, not just a segment of practice is huge. One of the challenges of taking over a new program is you have all these grand ideas about what do you want to run offensively and defensively? And we can do these actions and we get players in this situation. And you might put all that down in a notebook. You might make a huge Google Doc here. But what you have to understand is that everything costs. Right. So the more set plays that I want to run, the more time it's going to take away from practice, you know, from us doing other things. There's an opportunity cost to everything that we put in. And so there has to be an understanding here of what's most important. I have to do the things that are going to have the greatest yield first before we move on to some of these other things. So like for us last year, it was basic defensive principles and rotations, basic offensive formation and, you know, footwork associated with that. Then we did press break. You know, eventually we did rebounding. Eventually we did post entries. Eventually we added. But over the course of time, like we understood, or maybe we just guessed right, the things that were going to have the greatest yield, we invested the most time in teaching, particularly early in the season. What's hard about that is that when you watch a film, and you know, we lost our first four games of the year last year, and only a couple of those games were competitive, you could 
fill up a notepad of all the things that we did wrong, that we didn't know, that we couldn't do, that we weren't prepared for. And you can't tackle all those things at once. We had to figure out what was going to be most important and then be disciplined to say, we're going to work on that until it's in a place where we're comfortable doing it before we add something else, even if that's something else you know, is going to continue to hinder us, which it did last year until we got to some of those other things. Yeah. My encouragement for coaches when, is when you make that big laundry list of all the things that you guys need to do better or you need to work on is to take that list and be intentional about which things you're going to choose to not do or not work on right now, because it's so easy to just become paralyzed or to just go ahead and say, all right, next practice, we're going to try to squeeze all these things in here. And then you end up doing none of it well, or you rush through all of it. Um, and you might go through and cover a hundred percent of those things, all the things you have on your list, but I would rather do two, three most important things really, really well than do all of them just to do them or just not so well. Or to check them off the list. Because, you know, again, as coaches, like we're going to be criticized for the things our teams don't do well. So I look back at last year, we never scored in transition. You could watch all 23 of our games and say, these guys never score in transition. They got some speed on the outside. Why aren't they running more? Well, we have a defense for that because we don't think it's going to yield enough of a gain for us to be worth the amount of time that it would take for us to really get into lanes and throw in this pass and get the spacing down. We're not going to be able to run against great teams. We'd rather make it harder for great teams to score. That was our rationalization. But that's really hard, right? Because up in the stands or people are whispering around the program or you get these complaints of like, you're not playing fast enough. Why aren't they running? They have good athletes. And so it can be difficult, you know, in the face of that criticism to hold firm and say, no, I don't think this, <laughs> the juice is worth a squeeze on that when we can get more out of spending our time on whatever those other things might be, whatever your priorities might be. Now, I know, JP, you've got a couple of questions you want to talk about, you know, just in terms of engaging your players. And I'm going to give you two to start here. And the first one is one that I've been challenged a little bit by from some of Chris Oliver's work. And that is, you know, a lot of times in practice, we'll go through and, you know, maybe we're playing five on five and a half court and we botch a defensive rotation. And so we stop it and we rewind the action and we start walking through and we ask the players, okay, where did we go wrong? What do we need to do differently next time? Like, and we do this to be able to see and correct mistakes. One of the things I heard Chris talk about recently was that how many times do we stop something in practice or even something in film and rewind and ask the question, why did that work? And I thought, that's genius. You know, we spend all this time on our mistakes, but do we really spend time when we watch a play? You know, we watch a lot of our successes in our film, but I've never really stopped and asked the team to reflect on why did that action or that sequence work? What did we do right that made that happen? Because again, that encouragement or that uh, reward or that affirmation is going to yield that behavior more frequently, but better for the kids to be able to reflect on it a little bit than just the coaches telling them this was a good play or this was a great shot. We're trying to get them to reflect through the process of both the good and the bad. Yeah. And I know that when things don't go well, when something bad happens, Oftentimes, when we try to engage and teach those moments, it comes across as blaming certain individuals instead of getting individuals to take responsibility. And I think it's really important uh, to move from blame to responsibility 
you know, blame, I think you're all about the outcomes, right? Oh, there was a missed rebound. We're just going to f- dwell on that. Uh, whereas responsibility f- focuses on the actions, the behaviors that would be important in, you know, being successful in that moment. Um, but if we can engage with questions, and I love your, your questions where, hey, why did this work? Um, one of my favorite, you know, s- series of questions I like to potentially walk players through and maybe you use all these, maybe you use one or two of them, but it's just, Hey, what happened there? Uh, what do you think caused that to happen? Bad or good? What ideas do you have to s- solve that problem now? Or hey, what do we, what do we learn from this that can help us next time? And you might get some players that take responsibility for, uh, let's just stick with your rebounding example here, a missed box out for instance. But when you engage the team in conversation there, you start to get other people to take responsibility. Like, hey, hey, we didn't give a reminder in that. We should have, you know, reminder on the shot and everybody to box out. So you get other people when you engage in those questions uh, that step, start to step up and, and take responsibility rather than if you come in as a coach and you tell them like, hey, you didn't box out and you all didn't do, give out, you know, shout out the shot went out there and give those reminders. It just feels significantly different when we use questions to engage with them. And I think related to that, JP, just a little nuance in language. And I'm thinking particularly when we're watching film, you know, we're trying to talk about defensive coverages as an example. We're asking now whose job is it? Not necessarily who's like it's Kenzie's job or it's Ashlyn's job, but it's the job of the top or it's the job of the bottom in the zone or it's the job of the middle. And in doing that, it depersonalizes a little bit. So it doesn't feel as much like blaming. You know, I'm not saying. Damn it, it's JP's job to box out the shooter every time. And here you can see he's not doing it, you know, or what should JP do differently next time? Like that all of a sudden gets us on our defenses. But if we ask, you know, what should we do on the ball? What's the responsibility of the on-ball defender? Now, all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about a situation that any one of four or five players could be in, right? And it, it maybe it's semantics and maybe it's a little bit too nuanced, but I can think of an example last year where you know, we called out the same kid on eight out of 10 clips for not boxing out. She walked out of that room and had no idea that we were singling her out. And maybe that's just because she wasn't paying attention. I don't know. But as a coaching staff, we felt like it was so obvious, but she didn't take any offense to it whatsoever because we were just talking about the tops of the zone. Another important aspect here, JP, of becoming a better teacher is understanding where learning manifests itself. I remember about 10 years ago, I got to spend a week with a really successful NAI college program men's basketball program, watch their practices and sit in with their coaching meetings and all these kinds of things. And the coaches were talking about their shooting system in practice. And they had this really elaborate, you know, you shoot so many from the elbow and then off the dribble. And it was the same every single time they did it every single time in practice. And they charted this block practice all the way through the season. And they would come back and they'd say, gosh, we get better. You know, by the end of the year, our kids on average are shooting eight to 10% better in practice, you know, on these shots. And my question was, well, do you see the same improvement in games, right? Like demonstrating improvement in practice or in a drill or in a shooting contest, that's not really the evidence that we're looking for. What we're looking for is what happens in a game. And that's really when the bullets are flying and they're out there on their own, that's where we find out, do they know or not? Have I taught, have they learned or not yet? Instead of just evaluating only what happens in practice to determine our improvement. And I think related to that point is that mastery, and I'm talking about you know, your, your skill proficiency of your players, is the product of a thousand mistakes. 
it's not something where we do it once in practice. We roll out in the game on Tuesday and it's either fixed or it's not fixed, right? It's this progression over time. But for us to improve and for us to be able to, to grow in whatever it is we're teaching, we also have to give players the grace to make mistakes as they're learning because quite simply, there's no other way, right? In, in order for us to develop in live play, then giving the opportunity for them to learn through their mistakes along the way. Now, Nate, I hear you talk about a thousand mistakes and I think as a coach boy, but I don't want a thousand of the same mistakes, right? And what do we do when we're getting the same mistake and we feel like as a coach, I've, I've tried a million different ways to teach this differently. I think one of the things that we often might do as a coach is we check for understanding. We do a drill or we teach a concept and we say, hey, do you, know, do you understand that? Does that make sense to you? And so rather than just always checking for understanding, I would try to make time. If you're continuously running the same problem again and again, you, you, you try to change up the way that you're teaching it and you're working on those things, just to pull aside some of your more experienced veter- players, your veterans, or some of the players that are struggling and just ask them, hey, we, we, we seem to be really struggling to get this down. This seems to be a constant frustration. What can I do better as coach to help, help you all? Is there something I could do differently within practices or, or, or film that could help you all improve at this or make the, make the changes that you need to make? And I think sometimes that type of reflection on your own teaching helps us to grow into maybe what we're aspiring to be is that master teacher as well, too. Well, here's the last challenge we'll talk about today, JP, when it comes to just developing, becoming a better teacher. I think it's really hard sometimes for the average fan. And again, I go back to thinking about what's the difference between what the parent in the stand sees and what they say compared to what I see and what I say as the coach, halftime in practice, et cetera. And I think the biggest disconnect is that the parents or the average fan doesn't always understand what the problem really is. A couple of simple examples. So there's a great clip on YouTube of Cam Newton when he was with the Carolina Panthers going through his, his progression from calling a play in the huddle to going up to the line of scrimmage to reading the defense, making his checks, communicating to his wide receivers, and then he snaps the ball. And if you look at that sequence, and we'll put the link in the show notes, there's probably a dozen things that could go wrong just in the calling of a play and the adjustments that are made at the line of scrimmage. That if one guy blows his blocking assignment or somebody reads the defense in the wrong way or, or misunderstands what's called in the huddle, the whole play collapses. The average fan up there thinks, how the hell could they call that play on this down? That never would have worked. But the reality was it was the right play. It was the, you know, the right call against that defense, but one person messed it up. And so the master teacher looks at the sequence and says, I recognize where we went wrong. The wide receiver didn't see the hand signal and therefore didn't run the right route. We had everything else correct and teaches to that rather than saying that play doesn't work and throw it away or the quarterback doesn't know what the hell is going on, you know, and put somebody else in there. So I think understanding what the problem really is can be a real challenge again for certainly for the average fan. And sometimes for us as coaches, if we just dwell on the result and don't work our way back through the process that led to the outcome to inform what we teach next. One other thing that I, I want to add here, and this, this is a shameless plug for your book, but all the things that we've talked about here in terms of just improving our teaching, a lot of the examples have been tactical, technical, strategic type things, particularly in a basketball context. How do we approach a problem with our offense or our defense or communicating something in practice? 
I think both you and I would agree, all of our experience in working with coaches and building cultures in different programs, that the same approach to teaching can have the same dramatic effect on our culture. If we only think about telling players, you have to have a positive attitude or you have to be a better leader, but we don't spend the time to teach them how we're going to continue to spin our wheels and be frustrated. But if we use some of the same approaches we've talked about here, trying to understand what the real problem is when it comes to a player not communicating or not being coachable or why something isn't working that we're trying to implement, whether it's a captain's council or one-on-ones or peer accountability, whatever those things might be, they have to be taught just as much as how to run a particular defense or a particular press break. And that's the thing, you know, when I read through your book, JP, and we see some of the comments from other coaches is that the feedback has been, I've always seen these things as a problem. And now I have a better sense of how to teach my team to establish standards, to support those standards collectively, and to hold each other to those standards in a way that moves our culture forward. I always knew that was necessary. Your book really outlines for coaches how to do those things and how to teach your culture the same way that we're trying to teach our strategies and systems as we've talked about here today. All right, that's it for today. If you haven't already, please buy your copy of The Culture System and then read it. Don't forget to read it. I remember hearing once only a quarter of the books purchased are read, but I guarantee you this book will help you significantly this season.